presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright, and I'm chairman of the board of CSI. Thank you for joining us today. As the November election year, CSI just released its 2022 ballot guide. I encourage you to take a look at it. Well, I won't tell you how to vote, it is a very valuable resource for all Coloradoans and gives you insight. It summarizes key findings from each of the four ballot items covered by CSI this election season and provides links to full reports. While there are several other measures on this year's ballots, the three statewide issues covered in the CSI ballot guide include Proposition 123, Proposition 121, and Proposition FF. We have done a podcast on Proposition 123, and I'd encourage you to to listen to it. It also includes analysis of the Denver Ordinance 305. To discuss this issues, I am once again joined by CSI's Vice President of Policy, Research, Chris Brown. Chris, it's great to have you. Good to be here, Earl. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm joined by Evelyn Lim, CSI's Free Enterprise Fellow. Evelyn, it's always great to be with you. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me, Earl. You're welcome. Thank you to both. Let's get started. Start on Proposition 123. It proposes dictating one-tenth of one percent, sounds like a small amount, of federal taxable income from the state's general fund to create a statewide affordable housing fund. In addition to the funds allocated for building affordable housing, the measure also addresses the need to shorten the costly housing approval process by including a fast-track approval policy in the measure. Chris, do these wide-reaching aspects of the measure lend itself to a greater chance of success, or does the measure need more parameters and guidelines for it to make a dent in the affordable housing problem? And Chris, based on the previous uh, podcast we did, we're talking about affordable housing shortage, maybe around 140,000 units. So help us out. Yeah, Proposition 123 is one of the, you know, more impactful, one of the larger issues on the ballot this year for voters. And we wanted to uh, highlight this issue by taking a look at exactly the elements that you articulated, which were to what extent will this measure address or can it address uh, affordability issues facing Colorado housing? Uh, and I do encourage listeners that want more in-depth on this issue. You can find the full report on our website. You can listen to the prior podcast. But the measure, in its, in its attempt to allocate and set aside $300 million approximately, which will grow in future years, and require municipalities to adhere to new, these new standards of improved uh, fast-tracking of permitting to meet a 3% uh, growth rate in affordable housing units has a very aspirational ask of municipalities, which is needed, uh, yet it will be interesting and I think of concern for voters in different parts of the state whether or not their municipality, their city, their jurisdiction will uh, be willing to opt into this, to accept the funds, to meet some of those standards and expectations of the measure. Let's make certain we're all on the same page here. 
So the city of Denver, the city of Bloomfield, any uh, particular governing, uh, local governing agent, it could be county or city, has to, in effect, try to set aside land under, some, under the process that a, uh, some, uh, they may either a, a nonprofit or a for-profit developer, depending on what the city wants to do and how they want to use the land. They have a fast track. 90 days, is that what fast track is? For the permitting process. For the right. permitting, which typically takes a lot longer than that. Certainly. How long does it typically take, Evelyn, a permitting process, or Chris? It varies by jurisdiction, but An average. six months to a year would, would not be out of the... Well, that would be saving a lot of money then for a developer to have a fast track. And so if the city decides they want to do that and develop it one way or another for affordable housing, which is defined by this particular act, I guess it's uh, 30% of the average median income of that particular group. So it'll be housing for that those particular folks. Okay. Now tell me, Evelyn, this measure allows for local governments to opt out of the affordable housing program if they choose, given the fact that the major success depends in part on the number of local governments that opt into the program. Do you think we could expect to see most localities enroll in the program? And what uh, problems will the uh, program face if it fails to recruit a substantial number of local governments? I think the one of the biggest challenges to this measure in terms of implementation is really that opt-in aspect to it. So I well, think... Let me stop you there. Do they have to put up money to opt-in or opt-out? Or is it just a matter that they have to follow a process that's being defined by this this proposition? Right. They have to follow the process. Um, and I think that one of the challenges, and this is Peter LaFari wrote the ballot guide for, for this measure for uh, Common Sense, and Peter was my co-fellow last year. We looked at affordable housing, housing affordability in Colorado. And one of the challenges we saw in that report that we outline is this whole land use process. So a lot of times city councils or the planning board would not approve projects because of various things, whether whether it's, you know, too much density, which causes a lot of traffic. We've seen things like, uh, you know, it would harm uh, people would be afraid that it harms kind of the the fire routes, even though the you know the fire station says it doesn't. And so they would find various obstacles so that uh, these these uh, developments wouldn't get approved. And so the challenge with the opt-in is even if Colorado citizens say we approve this measure, we overwhelmingly vote in favor of it, the city council can still say, well. In our area, we don't want that density or we don't want these, you know, increased traffic. We don't have enough spaces for parking. And so they can opt out, which basically means that they're not going to utilize the program at all. And so it, it seems a little strange to me that, that you would write a measure that would basically say, we're going to do all of this, but it really still, and we're going to have the, the people vote on it, but it's still up to the city council to say whether we're going to actually implemented or not. So just because I vote on it and, and, and we as a group decide that this is something that we all would like to have doesn't mean that statewide all of a sudden we're going to have more affordable housing. Correct. And I think, Earl, just to jump in, I don't know if I fully answered your, your first question, which to that last point, we did, and, and, and Peter, the CSI's housing fellow, did make a series of recommendations around 
the issue of whether or not to, and to what extent municipalities would opt in. And so I think to your question about might more be needed, it does seem and uh, it would be prudent and we do recommend to voters and legislators to consider future measures, which would have to go through the legislature to improve the language around this law. And specifically, we, we recommend instituting a performance-based cap on how the fund would grow so that it doesn't accumulate too many, too much excess resources if municipalities don't opt in. We recommend that all funds should be rebruced if they are reappropriated out of this new housing fund back into the general fund. And there's some mechanisms there, some nuance around Tabor, uh, why that recommendation exists. And we, we recommend that the, the, the agencies implementing this stay true to the measure and the value proposition given to voters by not limiting the requirements on accepting the funds. There might be pressure if, if municipalities can't say they can't opt in to loosen some of these restrictions, which would uh, undermine some of those affordability issues and, and benefits of this measure that, that we talk about. And along with some periodic review and a, another recommendation, those are the core elements that we think would need to be uh, included in future a legislation to ensure the, the you know the ultimate success of a program like this. Well, yeah, but I, Chris, I appreciate all that, but you're saying these are things that the state legislature would have to enact, and you've listed them along with our fellows as to what would be needed to be to be enacted along with the if this particular referendum is passed. That's correct. Okay, so once again, it's I'm, not included in this measure. That's my point. So it's not your recommendations as to how to really make this pro, this referendum work better and more likely to be effective requires future legislation, and we don't know where that, how that might occur, or when that might occur, or if it might occur. Okay, sure. let's go on to Proposition 121. Proposition 121 provides proposes, I'm sorry, to cut the state income tax from 4.55% to 4.4% for both individuals and corporations. If passed, what effect would this have on the Colorado economy, if any? Chris? So Proposition 121 is another incremental reduction in our state's income tax. Colorado voters passed a similar incremental reduction in our state income tax last year. This would ultimately save Coloradans, Colorado taxpayers, about $1.6 billion over the first five years after its passage. In 2023, so next year, taxpayers would save about $767 million as the benefits from the retroactive implementation of this on the 2022 tax year plus 2023 reduction in the rate, you know, both longer term and some immediate term impacts to taxpayers, which would ultimately translate to increased spending, consumption, investment in the Colorado economy. We estimate that in 2023, those taxpayer savings would generate about 9,600 additional jobs across the state, 9,100 in the private sector and about 510 public sector jobs next year. So you're telling me that this would be an economically enhancing proposition? Yes. Well, if we're looking at the current time, 
possibility of a, a recession. Explain to me, if you would, what's the negative of doing this if we think this would be something that would enhance the Colorado economy? Anytime you address the revenue coming into the state, you want to consider the spending side and how this impacts state budget. Well, is spending going to be cut by this amount and all of a sudden we're going to lose uh, state services we haven't had before? Well, interestingly you know, enough, and you ask, because of the state's spending limitations and growth and the taper limitations on how quickly our spending can increase, the tax reductions in this measure are expected to essentially offset future taper refunds. Against the baseline, the state budget would not be impacted through the, the two-year projections that we have. Oh, my goodness. So wait a minute. So you're telling me we get more money in our pocket, we could probably enhance the economy, and we're not likely to cut our, our government services that we already have in place? In the immediate future, in the long term, that means less revenue to the state, but some of that growth will, will likely offset that. Evelyn, seems like it's a win-win for the uh, you know, Colorado public uh, and taxpayer. Uh, help me out. Uh, how do you see it, if any different? I think that anything that keeps more money in your pocket now versus later is, is a good thing, as well as, as uh, making sure that government grows at a reliable but not um, overblown way. Proposition FF, healthy school meals for all. My goodness, that sounds like a good program. Maybe dig a little deeper into it. This will fund free, healthy lunches for all students and participating school districts by increasing the income tax rate on Coloradoans, making 300000 or more per year. Chris, CSI has projected that this measure could be either severely overfunded or lack the necessary funds to adequately operate. Now, that that sounds terribly confusing to me, so you're going to have to figure, tell us how that you come out with either or here. Can you speak about these two potential outcomes and why the program is likely to be one or the other and how one or the other might occur? Sure. Let me, let me start with one of the first points you made about this is a new increase in, in taxes, uh, about a $100 million tax increase estimated to be in the first year. And though it does not increase rates, it reduces deductions on high-income earners. So you can think of this as a progressive tax on wealthier Colorado families to fund the expansion of school meals for more than 600,000, almost two-thirds of Colorado students who are currently not eligible for free meals uh, at school. So this extends coverage. Now, your question about the long-term fiscal solvency is this measure says we are going to increase taxes on households making more than 300, filers making more than $300,000 a year and will raise revenue. And we are going to commit to spending on healthy school meals for Colorado students uh, increase wages for some food workers. There's small grants that will be made uh, around purchasing and, and uh, meal food locally. The revenue and the spending are not connected in any way. So over oh, time... Wait, 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 wait. wait. I, I want to make certain we understand what you just said. So those 
that will be having the higher income in the state. This is a fixed tax going forward that they will be paying. There's no sunset on it. It's there, and it's going to stay there. And the legislature can't change all of a sudden how these funds will be used. It's there specifically to be used just for this event. It sounds to me like that's a progressive progressive tax going forward because, you know, as we all know, if you don't have an inflation adjustment, all you're doing is having more people pay more taxes as inflation impacts wages. Am I missing something here on the tax? The tax goes to the general fund, and the general fund is what would fund the Healthy School Meals program. Well, no, wait. Is it is it specifically allocated and can never be diverted? Certainly not. This is going to the general fund, as I said. So this is a tax increase going to the general fund, and the program is funded through the budgeting process, taking funds out of the general fund. And so this question of is the tax – one question you can ask as a voter would be, is the tax increase sufficient to pay for the likely costs of providing these meals? Well, surely somebody has done the analysis. They have, and they have. And those projections are very near term. And one thing we wanted to highlight, and we did modeling on this to, to articulate, was over time, as the tax increase, again, is not tied, is not adjusted as the program changes, let's say food costs increase faster, the utilization across schools is different than maybe expected. There's an there's a, a incredible amount of uncertainty about how much will be funded through the federal government because of interactions with our Medicaid programs. But the federal government requires you use it specifically for a program. You don't have a lot of flexibility where one year you can, one year you can't, like we do in this particular proposition. That's right. And so there's a lot of scenarios in the long term. To your point, if Medicaid and the federal government is able to and, and ultimately does fund more of the program, we highlight that the tax increase would actually be substantially more than the program would require for providing meals in this way. And that, those funds would just be available in the general fund to be spent any way the legislature so decides. This becomes a general tax increase primarily. And 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 in, mid, in, in three of our four scenarios, that actually is the primary risk. And and it's highlighted in the near term in the in the draft ballot analysis that voters will get in the blue book. So it is a bit wonky, admittedly, that we talk about the risk of underfunding or overfunding. However, this is a core piece, in my opinion, of why budgeting in the long run becomes so challenging when programs are established and guaranteed and not directly tied to the funding source in the way voters and the public may understand them to be when they're voting on them. I'm puzzled. I'm puzzled by the proposition, and either one of you, please speak up, because it seems to me that if you want to make certain these funds go for the children that uh, need to have it because their income situation, why don't you just set it up so that it just specifically goes for that and nothing but that versus into the general fund so that it, if it's needed, it goes for that. If it doesn't, the money goes someplace else instead of telling everybody it's going for healthy lunches all the time. You know, and there's, there's precedent for how that could be done on, on fees and transportation 
the the other mechanism that that you could use would be as the audits of these programs are done and and looking at uh, it you know are there what is the true cost of this measure you could make adjustments on the tax increase to either lower the, the deduction or increase the deductions so that your revenue would balance for the demands of the program but that is not again not something that is currently recommended or being done on Proposition FF as voted on by by Coloradans this fall. Okay, so this is a tax increase, in fact, a progressive tax increase, that all the funds may or may not be used with regards to healthy lunches. Am I missing something? The only thing I'll add is that we do have free and reduced lunch program for low-income students. This is expanding that to everybody. And so... Oh, everybody gets it? This is healthy meals for all public school children. Oh, forgive me. I didn't pick up on that right away. So so even the kids that, you know, are clearly mom and dad dropped them off on the Rolls Royce are getting free lunches. Correct. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, let's move on. See if there's some more surprises we can come up with here as far as understanding. Ordinance 305, no eviction without representation. Now, that sounds pretty interesting. It plans to allocate just shy of $12 million for the purpose of providing universal legal defense for any tenant in the city of Denver facing, no, in the city of Denver, right? Correct. All right. We're in the process of eviction through a $75 excise tax to be paid by the landlords on their residential rental units. Is that annual, Evelyn, or is that? Uh, annual. That's annual, okay. Uh, this is a substantial amount of funding. Are there any local and national programs currently in place to address this need? Or is this uh, just unique to Colorado, and does this issue require substantial infusion of funding? Those are all great questions. So I'll start a little bit um, at the beginning, and this is similar to the uh, Proposition FF. This program, which is a right to counsel and eviction, uh, does exist. It's not a it's not a right, but we do have a lot of programs in place that fund free legal help for people who are facing an, uh, an eviction. So this expands that substantially so that anybody who is facing an eviction, regardless of income, can um, have an attorney represent them in an eviction case. And again, this is just for the city of Denver. So there are uh, several programs that are initiated or are implemented throughout the United States. It's it's becoming a little bit of a trend to call it a right to counsel, uh, but there are some distinct differences in this measure that are different from those programs that have been implemented elsewhere. So, you know, San Francisco was the first city that implemented a right to counsel. Uh, New York has done it. Washington State has, is looking at it, and even Boulder, Colorado has done so. These programs have been funded either through the city's general fund or through other uh, federal funds and most recently some COVID relief funds. So the American Rescue Plan, a lot of people are using that to fund this program. They've also provided different limits that this initiative does not have. So those other programs, for example, would say uh, you have to use a nonprofit organization for attorneys. This measure specifically says that you can use a private attorney or you could use a, a law firm to represent you, and that is included in this measure. Um, so it's other- a supplemental uh, income provision for lawyers. <laughs> 
I didn't say that you did, but I, <laughs> but um, I do wonder about some of those provisions and also the income limits. So this, uh, most programs have an income limit. They are based on AMI or the federal poverty level. Uh, This is universal. So anybody, regardless of whether they can pay for an attorney or not, would fall under this program. Okay. Uh, Some of the analysis that we did, um, I'll just mention, is that uh, this 75 dollar excise tax, which the measure specifically says can increase as long as it's under the rate of inflation annually, uh, that we projected, we we looked at evictions in Colorado uh, that happened. um, We looked at the high, the low, and the average. And obviously, over the last two years, we've had an eviction moratorium uh, because of the pandemic. But we took those numbers and we said, okay, well, realistically, how much would this program cost to implement? And what we found was that it raised an excess of between $9.9 million and $7.8 million. Excess? Excess. Excess. Correct. In light of what, actual, what our history would suggest we need, it's an excess. Correct. Now, forgive me for being a little bit suspect, but uh, is there a possibility here that legal fees are not going to be tapped or or there isn't a maximum amount on an hourly basis that a lawyer can charge or anything that the person providing this service to an evicted person may have to restrain themselves and how they they charge for their service? Well, we can look back at the programs that are, in fact, in place that deal with people who need help, legal help for an eviction, and they are done. There, there are a lot of services here that are done by nonprofits in Colorado and in, in Denver. And so those are the numbers that we base this on. Okay. But in fact, in an eviction proceeding, you can delay. You can say, well, we need more time. We need to look at this. And so fees can, in fact, increase. Okay. Well, Chris, um, there's got to be some concern that landlords are going to pass this on, increase the cost to renters. I, I, there doesn't even have a concern. Come on, it's going to happen. We all know that. Right now, if you build new units, it's very tough to uh, build them and make money at current rental rates and current costs. And we're saying we're 140,000 units short of affordable housing. I don't see how that's going to help with regards to creating more affordable housing. Are there any other costs associated with this measure that landlords may try to pass on? Because you know what's going to happen. You can't just all of a sudden have them pay for something they don't have the income available to deal with. Well, you're, so you're absolutely right, Earl, that these sorts of costs are passed on largely to the, the, the costs directly from the tax. And then as, as Evelyn just talked about in terms of how the increase in representation by tenants with excess funds available could lead to delays and and higher costs for t- landlords far beyond the $75 tax in terms of their legal costs to work through the courts in these cases and you know we found research from the Center for Real Estate out of MIT that studied changes in property taxes in Massachusetts at the local level across decades and found that landlords passed on about 80 to 90% of these changes in taxes in, in property taxes not only does well, they the have direct no, they have no choice i mean let's get real i mean if you've got an expense you don't have the income to recover it you know where does it come from is is the uh, builder or the owner of the property now going to end up being subsidized 
like the renter? I mean, that doesn't make sense. It's just not a winning proposition. Certainly. And these, these, these costs are both direct and indirect, and they come, you know, in ter- so they, they impact tenants and the impact is we want to really highlight the impact affordability. I think, as Evelyn has, has talked about, there are existing programs that support renters to avoid the process of eviction. Majority of evictions are related to uh, financial and mispayments and issues around around payments, and there is substantial resources to help uh, renters facing those those issues. And and there's a right way to do this. I think the uh, you know there's a theme not to go back to Proposition FF and the Healthy Meals for All measure, but this is a there's a similar theme here, which is there is a tax increase, an excise tax increase. And a new program, which is guaranteed representation, and the the two do not directly relate. And this program, as we've demonstrated in the cost modeling, has the potential to raise and would likely raise far greater funds than would be required. And so this, again, becomes a general tax increase. Required as you're currently experiencing it. Correct. As we're currently experiencing well, and, and, the cost of... Currently experiencing it, and, and the height of evictions occurred in 2010. And we modeled out a scenario where what if, the, what if you covered at a, at a, at a, you know, with the expected cost of evictions at that level, and we still see uh, almost $8 million of the $12 million collected beyond what would be needed to, to represent the tenants in this case. Evelyn... Uh... The eviction defense as a universal right, you mentioned that to all tenants. Um, I don't know where the universal rights stop, but, you know, the guidelines to make this measure, are there guidelines to make this measure more effective, in your opinion? Are there any scenarios where this funding will result in uh, societal costs uh, uh, beyond what Chris mentioned? Well, there are two points that I just want to make. One is that most landlords are small business owners. So I think that, you know, to the point of whether this gets passed on, and you said it, is that they have to. And so I think that that is, there's a misconception around that these are, you know, big institutional, you know, people in New York who own these um, units. But the majority, I think it's something like 71% of uh, landlords are own uh, three to five units. And so it's 71%. I think that's the national number. It's in the report Earl. So you might, yeah, but, um, I have to refer to that, but, but it was very close. Colorado was very close to what the national was. So that's one point. But the other point I think is important is that as Chris mentioned, there are existing programs that, that do this. And I encourage people who are going through an eviction to seek those out. They can call HUD, which HUD doesn't do the programming, but HUD has all those resources that they can connect people to. But I also think that the important thing about those existing programs is that people, we try to help people way upstream before they're actually in an eviction process. Because once you're in the court system, it's very, very hard to get out of it. And so, you know, this right to counsel is important, but what's I think is more important is trying to help people who are in danger of eviction. So whether they can't pay for their rent, whether they have a landlord who is, you know, um, against them or not fixing up their unit, there are 
programs in place that will help those people for free. And so one of the things about this program is it's creating an entirely new program in addition to existing programs. And it's so, also putting more weight on the judicial system, which is already, as I understand it, and we've mentioned in previous reports, overburdened. Sure, absolutely. Well, you mentioned recommendations, Earl, and that is, you know, I guess one potential opportunity within this measure, if it does pass, there is a complete lack of good insight into the the scope of what eviction proceedings are occurring, why they're occurring, what the outcomes are. So to the extent this measure is trying to address, uh, as they quote it, wrongful evictions, through the data collection, some of the requirements in the measure and other ones that we recommend in our report, there might be better transparency into what the the scope of these evictions looks like across the city. Again, that, that may be something that city council, as they revisit this and look at this in the future and maybe recognize the cost is substantially less than the tax, could revisit this in the future. And so some of the data collection requirements here could be beneficial in that regard. And as someone who appreciates the data, I've had to point that out. Yeah, I, I guess I'm I'm a bit... I don't know. I, I guess a little bit skeptical of these all sound like inc- incredibly worthwhile measures. But then when you look inside of it and say, well, really, what is the need? Does it solve the situation? And uh, you have to ask yourself, um, some of these measures aren't very well thought through or crafted. But I don't want to pass a judgment in such a way that I'm suggesting how people ought to vote. We've got the ballot measures assessed. And in the blue book, well, we have uh, much of what uh, – our analysis is done in the blue book so that people can read the blue book and and get much of what we are hearing on the podcast in the blue book. Well, the blue book is right released separately by the, the Legislative Council staff. We cite some of their work, and our ballot guide is on our website. So you can you know, download our ballot guide and read it at the same time you read your blue book. Okay, so the blue book doesn't necessarily reflect our, our research. But, okay, so you'd read both concurrently. Okay, very good. Evelyn, Chris, any final comments that you'd like to share with us? No, thank you, Evelyn, for your work and and, and insight on these topics as well. And thank you, Earl, for digging in. But uh, these are complicated measures. Voters have a lot on their plate to to study up. And uh, we're we're glad to do this work and, and take these sorts of questions. Evelyn? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think the work that CSI does in terms of educating voters is is essential for um, for our democracy. You know, I, but it takes people like yourself with your skill set to dig into the numbers and really make certain we have a chance to understand uh, how does all of this fit together. And some of it just doesn't fit together very well in light of what you think might be occurring. So thank you for having the courage to step out, do the analysis, and share it with us. And for everyone listening, thank you for listening today. And I encourage you to read the reports as well as the, the uh ballot initiative guide that we have put together. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.